This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We welcome you to this June 21st edition of Real Talk. It's Jesperson here with the intrepid and talented John Hicks, the technical producer of the show, coming up in just a minute. Uh, he's a tech critic. He's a podcaster. He's an author. He is arguably Elon Musk's biggest critic or maybe the biggest cynic over the uh, CEO's plan, the Twitter CEO's plan via self-driving cars and rocket ships to space uh, on how those will transform society, transform humankind or not. Paris Marks joining us in just a second. In about a half an hour's time, we're going to be taking a look back 10 years ago today, the city of Calgary and surrounding communities absolutely decimated by floodwaters who will ever forget the southern alberta floods of 2013 we'll talk to two disaster researchers from mount royal university uh, that have been digging into how those floods shaped calgary and southern alberta as a community it's summer solstice tonight and it is national indigenous people's day and we will recognize that uh, with our friends out in jasper today as well there's actually an event going on today if you find yourself on your way out to jasper national park or anywhere near we have the details coming up in this episode of real talk before we get to paris marks we wanted to get the word out you know it's officially the first day of summer and the kids are wrapping up the school year and things are we hope for you, winding down at work. Now, a lot of us have vacation on the brain. Not John. John's always working. Oh, yeah. He's always working. But for those of you that do, you know, honestly, you get it, right? You relate. You, you've got bigger things on your mind than maybe just where you'll kick up your feet or how you'll get that sand between your toes. You know that summer is the best time to take that real estate course you've been thinking about and get started on a career that you actually love. Why not leave cubicle life behind for good with Rello? Rello's online real estate courses are fully accredited to help you get your real estate license in our home province of Alberta. And they've just added a commercial real estate course to their offerings. More courses coming soon as well. You can get licensed the easy way with Rello's convenient self-paced courses. You can check out Rello.ca. That's R-E-L-O.ca today to get started. Well, what role will tech play in shaping our communities? What role will tech play in dictating or at least enticing us to imagine what our future could look like? Simply put, will tech save us? Our leadoff guest this morning doesn't think so. As a matter of fact, Paris Marks is a New York Times recommended podcaster with the popular pod tech won't save us. Also the author of Road to Nowhere, what Silicon Valley gets wrong about transportation, uh, making their real talk debut. It's a real pleasure to welcome Paris Marks. Thanks for making time for us and welcome to the show. Good morning, Ryan. Great to join you. Uh, why won't tech save us? I mean, how did this become something that, that, that occurred to you that you realized this is something you could build a whole show around? 
<laughs> well, you know, I think everyone gets a little excited about the tech industry. And certainly we've seen, you know, over the past 10 or 15 years, a lot of excitement about, you know, what tech was delivering to us. You know, a lot of people excited about Elon Musk and his big visions of the future and all those sorts of things. And I think that one thing that really became clear to me, you know, as I've been watching this industry and writing about this industry for quite a number of years now is that, you know, especially around kind of the mid 2010s, you know, 2016, 2018, around that period, it felt like there started to be a bit of a reassessment, right? We had all this excitement around, you know, uh, companies like uh, Google or, you know, Facebook, even people, you know, remember when people used to like Facebook and, and didn't actually hate it like many people do now, um, you know, and there was a bit of a reassessment to say, okay, what is the impact that these companies are actually having in our lives? Are they actually delivering on the promises that they made to us, you know, in the past? Are they really improving society in the way that they promised? Or do we need to start to think about like, you know, okay, yeah, they have, they have, you know, certainly changed many aspects of our society, certainly done many things, you know, certainly some services are more convenient because they've rolled out. But, you know, is everything positive? And do we need to start to pay attention to actually the negative impacts that they're having as well? And that's kind of what I explore in the show with different guests every week. So, so it's sort of more just a, hey, everybody, let's pump the brakes. Uh, although I guess maybe that metaphor actually kind of works if we're talking about self-driving <laughs> cars in the future of transportation, which you and I will. Uh, more of a let's take a measured approach to new tech. I mean, I, I was just we're checking out your Twitter. People can follow you at Paris Marks. And uh, you, you were poking a little fun at these new Apple Vision Pro headsets we were talking about them we like to say them in canadian dollars forty seven hundred dollars these headsets that are going to be made available i guess about a year from now uh, some people are saying that they will change the the entire way that people interact with tech but you don't seem sold on them yeah, I'm, I'm very skeptical. <laughs> uh, you know, price tag, first of all, of course. Um, but I'm sure at some point they will have like a more affordable version. But but I think the bigger question for me is like the tech companies have really been trying to sell us on headsets for a number of years now, right? Uh, you know, a few years ago, Meta, formerly Facebook, was trying to sell us on the metaverse and this idea that we were all going to be wearing like VR headsets and going into this virtual world. Um, but, you know, before that, Microsoft had its headsets. You know, PlayStation has obviously put out VR headsets in the past and, and continues to um, this is really like a long running thing that the tech industry is trying to has been trying to convince us like will be the future for a long time now and people don't really seem to be buying it so of course you know Apple will approach this you know with a more sleek headset certainly they put probably a bit more work into it than some of the other ones I hope so for that kind of price tag but I'm very skeptical that people are going to say you know how I want to deal with my computers or talk to people in the future by strapping this like heavy thing onto my face, right. <laughs> um, which makes it difficult to like look at everyone around me and, and communicate with people around me. I don't think that's the future. <laughs> yeah, I was just I was just in an airport that nothing that I'm about to offer is profound or even unique. I know that everybody has this experience, but I'm walking through an airport terminal uh, on Sunday night and, and, and I looked around and literally like I mean literally every single person is looking at a screen at their phone at their tablets at their laptops but but it was a sea of I would say I don't know 200 people uh waiting to board a flight and I just I found myself I mean I'm not a Luddite I am I embrace tech I'm probably like a middle of the road type person uh, when you look at society writ large uh, but I thought gosh you know back in the day like 25 years ago People, either perfect strangers, and for some it would be a nightmare, and for others, new friends, would be talking and interacting. Some would be reading a book, some would be reading a newspaper, some would be talking to their kids, but literally every single person was staring at a screen, and I, I don't know, it just... It kind of hit me for a second, you know, before I looked back to my own screen on my way to the baggage claim, you know? I mean, it's just <laughs> it's crazy how it's it happened. 
Yeah, totally. It, it brings to mind um, a friend of mine, Brian Merchant. He's the tech columnist at the LA Times. And he wrote a piece about this kind of Apple Vision Pro, uh, you know, last week, I guess, or something like that. And he kind of said, you know, we're already kind of uncomfortable with the degree to which we're all looking at our smartphones and dependent on our smartphones. And is what we want now to like strap our smartphones to our face and like be more immersed in our smartphones. Like, I don't think that's the future that most people want, but it's certainly the one that a lot of these tech companies would like us to desire. How do you let's talk a little bit about your book and and why don't we talk about the future of transportation and city building? Um, I should let people know and, and people will be interested uh, that you're going to be actually uh, delivering a, a, a speech in uh, Edmonton and people will be able to, to listen. People can check it out. Uh, a city councilor, uh, I believe, is hosting you. If I'm getting this correct, people can check out michaeljans.ca. Uh, they can find the information in our show notes if they want to learn more about this this talk that you'll be giving. But obviously, you've paid a lot of attention to how cities are built, how cities are designed, the kind of the ethos behind that. Uh, Edmonton, it's a wonderful city. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Edmonton, but it, but it's, it, it, it has a bit of a reputation as a bit of a car city. There's a huge controversy around bike lanes. I'm sure you're aware. If not, you're going to hear a lot about it in a couple of days. Uh, what, what sort of uh, you know zoomed out are you paying close attention to uh, when taking a look at how we build our communities, how we build our cities, and how transportation and tech fits into that? Absolutely. It's a huge topic, right? Especially because we all have to get around every single day. And I don't think Edmonton is the only city in Canada that is kind of a car city, right? Mm. Uh, many of our cities have been designed in that way or just communities in general. It doesn't have to be a big city. Um, I think that for me, like I look back at the history of transportation and where this all came from. And I think we have this idea that like the car was this inevitable thing that was just, of course, going to happen. But when I look back on it, like it was a very political thing that happened, right? You had a lot of commercial interests that were pushing it and governments that wanted this to be the way that we got around. And they made investments that were targeted at getting us to drive cars. And now when I kind of fast forward to what has been going on in the past 10 or 15 years, I think that people have recognized that, you know, there are a lot of issues that have arisen because of our dependence on cars. You know, the amount of time we spend stuck in traffic, the amount of people who die on our roads, of course, the emissions that come from our vehicles and that are contributing to climate change right now. And so I think that a lot of people recognize that something kind of has to change here and we're not 100% sure what. And the tech industry kind of saw that, you know, this was kind of a collective conversation that was beginning to happen. And they moved in and said, actually, we don't need to reconsider, you know, what the core of our transportation system is. All we need is some new technologies to go in there, some self-driving cars, you know, some ride hailing services, maybe some hyperloops, things like that. And that will solve the problem, right? We don't need to have difficult political conversations. We can just rely on new tech and that will fix everything. And I think what we've seen after that 10 or 15 years of promises that we've been looking at is the self-driving cars haven't really arrived. The Hyperloop is nowhere, you know, closer to being realized than it was 10 years ago. A lot of these big promises have not really paid off, have not delivered the benefits, but we're still dealing with these serious issues in our transport system. And so the question is, you know, how are we really going to address that in the future? Are we going to keep hoping that the tech industry delivers magical solutions or are we going to start having some difficult political conversations as to, you know, how we maybe change our focus uh, on how we prioritize transportation? What do you think that the average I, I, I'd be curious to know the statistics i don't know if you do or not on, on what average vehicle ownership looks like across the country uh, do you happen to have a number or know what the you know how many vehicles the average person owns is, is it more than one vehicle per person um i wouldn't know the exact numbers on that but 
like Canada is a very car dependent society. And, it doesn't, and, you know, yeah. just have to be Calgary or Edmonton, like across the country. Certainly have some of the bigger cities like, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, where you have people who are a bit more likely to cycle or take public transportation. But, you know, even even in those cities, like driving is still very, very common. Yeah. And I'd be, I'd be curious to know, I don't know how far to take it or how far to look ahead, whether it would be five years or 10 years or 20 years or what have you, 50 years, if we want to start talking about, you know, uh, you know, sort of really big long-term vision type stuff. But I'd be curious to know what, what trends will look like uh, in the context of vehicle ownership, whether it's, it's uh, you know, self-driving cars and then, you know, car services, maybe like sort of a whole new take on, on Uber that might not have drivers or, 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 or whatever. Um, I wonder what impact that might have on, I mean, heck, car dealerships. Like, I just, I'd be curious to know, um, have you put much thought into that? Absolutely. You know, it's something I think about a lot. And I think that, you know, the reality is that there's many different paths that this can take when we think about the future and where this is going to go and which technologies are going to be involved with it. Like if we were thinking about what was being promised to us 10 years ago, the tech industry was saying that self-driving cars are just going to take a few years. You know, by the end of the decade, they were going to kind of start becoming ubiquitous and, and be readily available in our cities. And that is really not what has happened. Um, you know, and a lot of these companies started to admit that in 2018 when I don't know if people remember, but there was this Uber test vehicle in Arizona that killed a pedestrian. And it was kind of, you know, the first time that one of these vehicles had really killed somebody. Um, and it caused a lot of reassessment, not just within the public and the media, but the industry started coming out and saying, okay, actually, these vehicles and this technology is going to take a lot longer than we previously predicted to actually be realized. Um, and, you know, it might never kind of reach that state where, um, you know, it can handle any weather condition, any road condition, you know, anything that you throw at it, and the human will never have to intervene. So I think we've seen a bit of a reassessment on that. I think I would say, like, when we look forward, obviously, we're making this transition to electric vehicles right now. And I think that that is going to be quite important and defining as to, like, what happens into the future. And if we're looking at, like societies like Canada or the United States, we're still going to have quite a bit of car ownership into the future. But I think one thing we need to recognize is that we have an over-dependence on cars right now, and that's causing a lot of our problems. And if we started to make some investments into public transportation, into cycling networks to give people some more options, then I think we could start to address some of these issues that we're having. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Paris Marks, uh, host of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast, a New York Times recommended podcast and author of Road to Nowhere what Silicon Valley gets wrong about transportation. Paris, it's been, uh, we, we talked yesterday uh, to author John Valiant, his new book, uh, Fire Weather, is absolutely, he blew our mind with his take on on the future of fire and, and humankind's relationship with fire. Uh, we can't ignore right now, uh, we've been grateful for rain over the past number of days, and obviously the hard work of uh, hundreds of wildland firefighters, but, uh, you know, a, a great portion of our home province of Alberta, Nova Scotia, obviously some of the United States and other parts of the world are experiencing wildfire um, with intensity like haven't seen in a while and, and, and growing and rising intensity. It's sort of becoming you know, part of our vernacular now. We talk about fire season and almost just brush it off. Uh, it's almost the, the way that we're reconciling um, some of the, the, the haze that sticks around our cities in some circumstances for you know, multiple days or even weeks. What's your angle on wildfire and the role that climate change is playing and public conversations that we either are or maybe aren't having? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge topic. And it's really shocking to see like some of the images that have come out of Alberta in the past, you know, number of weeks, right? I'm from Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, not somewhere that you associate with wildfires very often. But even last year, we had our worst wildfires in 60 years. So this is something that's really hitting the whole country. Um, and I think that when we look at, you know, the conversations that we're having around this, oftentimes, when we look at our political leaders, they talk a lot about kind of the technologies that are going to get us through this and that are going to make this transition easier. But I think that we need to start having a bit more of an honest conversation. And I know it's a difficult conversation, especially in places like Alberta and, you know, to be honest, Newfoundland and Labrador that are very dependent on oil and gas, uh, you know, production and revenues from that for their provincial budgets and their economies. Um, but I think we need to recognize that this is a transition that's going to take a little while. But if we don't start it now, then we're going to be really behind when we need to, you know, really start making these changes. And, you know, we're seeing these wildfires now and we're seeing these increases in natural disasters like the flooding that we saw in BC, uh, what was that a year or two ago? You know, we're seeing more and more of these real impacts. And this is just at 1.1 degrees of warming, right? That's happening kind of around the world. And right now we're looking like we're gonna breach 1.5, maybe even two degrees of warming in the years to come. And that means that every time that kind of global temperature increases, these natural disasters, not just in Canada, but around the world are gonna get worse. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't take that action today, if we don't start making those reductions, then, you know, the impact of this is just going to be, you know, worse and worse in the years to come, unfortunately. We've got a community like, I guess, about how far is Edson, Johnny, like 90 minutes west of us, something yeah, about like 90. that on the, on the way to Jasper. Edson has been basically in a, declared a state of emergency that's just basically remained uh, half of it due to wildfire and the, half of it due to flood. I mean, it's just absolutely, this community is is just, uh, I mean, not to say that there aren't resilient people there, but it's just been, been absolutely brutal right now. Uh, coming up in just a second, Paris, you've talked about it a little bit, but if tech won't save us, what will? Well, we're talking to Paris <laughs> Marks, uh, the author of Road to Nowhere. You can check out the book if you're not listening to this live. As a matter of fact, if you're watching this later, you'll be able to link directly to Paris's book and the upcoming event in Edmonton in the show notes. Back to Paris Marks in just a quick second. But our friends at Friesen Brothers wanted to let you know uh, that they're very proud to be sponsoring Edmonton Veg Fest. Uh, that's taking place on June 24th at Borden Park in our home city of Edmonton from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, despite the fact that Friesen Brothers is probably most well-known for its roots as a butcher shop established way back in 1955. Friesen Brothers actively supports the growth of veganism in both the industry and their company. And as part of their involvement at VegFest, uh, they're going to be featuring a vegan pepperoni pizza, also known as the Vegan Big Berta. John Hicks, you have had a chance to try this vegan pepperoni pizza. I did. It, it was absolutely incredible. Their uh, local, uh, is it the produce Their produce manager, manager. Yeah, came by came, and came gave by us a couple. You had it too? You took one home? Fantastic. Incredible. And VegFest is going to be an incredible event. I'm, of course, going to be out there DJing, emceeing. Uh, we got our friend Jordan Wilkie, leader of the Green Party, going to come speak. A number of other activists talking about climate change, wildfires, as well as how we can uh, eat healthier, eat greener, uh, veganism, etc. But it's going to be a great day. And a big thing they wanted me to tell you to mention, dogs allowed. Oh, it's dog friendly. Dogs allowed in okay, Borden Park. Okay, there you go. Awesome. You're going to have some dogs looking for some of that vegan pepperoni. You know, <laughs> they've got, such a yeah, good they've boy. got plant-based dog treats and everything. So All bring right. your pups out with them. Good stuff. Uh, Johnny's going to be out there. Uh, of course, the straw that stirs the drink at parties like this. <laughs> you can learn more about what's going on at Friesen.com slash vegan. Hey, we're talking a lot about climate change. We're talking about where industry is going to go. I'm curious to know what Paris Marks is going to say will save us. That in just a second. But I'll tell you, one of the companies that is absolutely leading the charge 
when it comes to intelligent design, spatial design, bringing outdoor spaces to life. I mean, I love the ethos behind Eden Landscaping. You can check him out online at landscapeedmonton.ca. We've had conversations with Mike, who's owned and operated this business for more than 20 years. I love, he says, more and more people are bringing in, they're doing what they can to bring in pollinators into their yards. They're bringing back more native plants and grasses. People are returning to the roots when it comes to their landscape design. And this is a trend that's really exciting to see. If it's about time that you transform your outdoor space, front yard, backyard, or wherever, take two seconds to browse the portfolio today at landscapeedmonton.ca. And we wanted to give a big shout out to our friend Jake Kubiski. He's the CEO of Kubi Renewable Energy. Jake has been, you know what? He's the Alberta finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. All right. How amazing is that as a national honor? Kubi Renewable Energy also proud to be sponsoring our Real Talk Golf Classic that goes tomorrow at the Ranch Golf and Country Club. Uh, Kubi Renewable Energy right now is hiring, looking for solar installers. If you're either an apprentice or you've got your ticket and you're looking to work in Alberta, Northwest Territory, Saskatchewan, BC. If you're looking to help Canada advance its sustainable energy goals, why not kickstart your career today by visiting kubienergy.ca. We're hanging out with uh, tech critic Paris Marks, author of The Road to Nowhere, a podcaster behind Tech Won't Save Us, an event coming up in the city of Edmonton. We'll tell you more about that in just a second. So Paris, You've had a second to think about it. If tech won't, what will save us? <laughs> it's a big question, right? And I, and I think tech is always part of it. You know, it, it's never uh, out of the equation. But I think that ultimately we need to think about, like, who is actually delivering, you know, these these significant benefits? Who is actually going to make the world a better place? And it's not technology that ultimately solves our problems. We can use technology to do that. But these are ultimately political decisions. And they come from, you know, I guess politicians who, who can think about, you know, how things can be better and try to move that forward. But ultimately, it's people organizing in order to try to make these kinds of changes in our communities, to try to push politicians and governments to do things differently. And also, you know, I think one of the things that's been really inspiring when you look at the tech space recently um, is to see a lot of workers kind of organizing and pushing for change within those companies um, to try to get them to, you know, take some actions that are uh, a bit more favorable that we would uh, want to be seeing. Are you are you paying much attention? I saw your most recent uh, episode of your of your pod, and uh, it, it looked to me like I had. And I'm gonna be honest with you; I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Crypto's final boss fight. Uh, people can check out Tech Won't Save Dot Us. Um, are you are you what's where what's your take on? And, and I don't like to say crypto because it's just such a broad. It's just such a. It's like saying what's your take on tech. Uh, what's your take on Bitcoin? What's your take on like Ethereum? What, what are are you? Does your cynicism include the future of finance? It absolutely does. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I was not a big fan of, you know, the crypto industry when it was having kind of its big moment in the past couple of years. Uh, you know, you saw a real kind of explosion through 2020, 2021. And then the steam really started to come out of that bubble through 2022. We saw a lot of collapses, you know, especially leading up to FTX and Sam Bankman Freed, which many people probably saw in the news. And more recently, um, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States filed lawsuits against Binance, which is the largest kind of international crypto crypto exchange um, and Coinbase, which is the largest exchange in the United States, essentially saying that they are kind of uh, in violation of U.S. securities laws. And so I think the big thing about crypto is it really promised this emancipatory future delivered to us by technology, right? It recognized 
you know, as a lot of these tech products do, that there was a serious problem in, in this case, the financial industry, where there's a lot of inequity in access to financial products, where there's a lot of general inequality in our society. And they said that by adopting cryptocurrencies, we could address this problem, right? And I think ultimately, when we look at this, we know that, you know, just introducing some cryptocurrencies is not how, we, how we're going to solve this. We saw, of course, a lot of people buy into this hype as the crypto industry was really exploding. And then as this really collapsed, a lot of those people lost a lot of money, right? Especially people who were brought in, you know, with the promises that they were going to be able to make a lot of money by putting their money into crypto. And so I think ultimately, if, again, like if we want to solve problems in the financial system, it's not something that's going to happen through cryptocurrencies. It's going to happen through, you know, proper regulation on banks, maybe thinking about public banking, how we increase people's access to uh, banking services and reducing the fees that they pay and all these sorts of questions, right? Very political questions that are not going to come from you know, cryptocurrencies and and things like that. Yeah, I I don't I don't want to get too out of my depth in in talking about this because t- to be honest, my level of understanding is is I'm in the shallow end of the pool. Let's put it that way. But but I do know that those that are bullish on Bitcoin in particular. I mean, the Wall Street Journal reporting on this just today. Uh, the headline: Bitcoin Bonanza on Tap. Uh, if if BlackRock, which is I mean, I think it's the world's big BlackRock BlackRock manages trillions of dollars, I think. Um, but they're they're looking to. Uh, for an ETF, they've applied for for an ETF, and and they're saying that if this happens, if it's approved, and I think that BlackRock is its record on these applications is like five hundred seventy five yays and one nay. I mean, people are saying if anybody can do it, it's BlackRock, and they're expecting that this could be a real bump. And and anybody that has holds a little Bitcoin, anybody that pays attention to it, knows that there's always the it's almost cyclical. The big stories, the headlines, the what if it could go here, it could be a hundred grand by the end of next year, it could be three hundred grand by the end of next. And 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 sometimes the bumps work, and and sometimes they don't. Um, I wonder what the public appetite looks like, or the endurance of people's interest in it, uh, if it truly is. Uh, going to be a significant player in the future. I understand why people would be intrigued by this. I, I look around me, uh, and this is just anecdotal. I mean, this certainly isn't evidence of anything, but I, f- I find that t- to a great degree, the average citizen seems to be losing interest, where I think that there was maybe a little bit more interest in it uh, a couple of years ago. Absolutely. You know, as the prices of all of these like crypto tokens was really taking off a few years ago, you could see why people were interested. The media was covering it a lot. There was the question of should I put some money in it to see if it's going to take off? I think that the real kind of issue with crypto as we think of it like as an investment kind of asset is when we think about stocks and when we think about these other financial products, usually there's something like there's a core business that is, you know, still at the base of it, right? That is kind of producing some kind of product or service that makes some money. There's a real business there. With cryptocurrencies, there's really like nothing tied to it. It's pure speculation. And that is really what drives and the the kind of price of these things, the ups and downs and, and where it tends to go. And I think that that is really kind of unreliable when we think about that as an investment um, asset, as something that people are going to want to reliably put money into. You know, there were some really devastating stories that came out of the collapse through 2022 as a lot of these projects and major kind of crypto tokens were really plummeting in value. You know, people who bought in, who put a lot of their life savings into it, believing, you know, what the crypto people were saying. Um, And then, you know, there were stories about people considering suicide because they lost so much money, like, you know, really considering how like they were losing their homes and all these sorts of things like 
really de devastating stories because I would argue they were misled about the potential of these things. And that's not to say that crypto is going to be completely gone into the future. I think Bitcoin, you know, will stick around for a while to come. But even that, you know, has a serious environmental impact because of all the computation that's required just to process transactions. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. And, and Paris, we're grateful for your time. Paris Marks joining us. If you're just tuning in on the live streaming Mixler audio app presented by California Closets, I, I can't ask you or I can't let you go without asking you about AI and I'm curious to know for your take. We talked to Frances Hagen on, on Monday, you know, the Facebook whistleblower. Um, and uh, she's the author of The Power of One. Really interesting perspective. I mean, she worked at Google, Pinterest, Yelp. Like she worked at all these giants. Right. And she's got an amazing perspective. This Harvard MBA. I don't think she's even 40 yet. Like unbelievable what she's accomplishing. But she really was. And she's not an alarmist. Like when you talk to her, she's very practical. She's very research. I mean, she's the whole thing. She blew the whistle on with the Wall Street Journal and, and and to the SEC was like tens of thousands of pages uh, worth of documents of, of findings and research that that Facebook in particular, Meta now, um, knows about. I mean, she's pointing to evidence. She's pointing to facts. And so it's a really compelling presentation on, on in particular um, how, how AI and how social media platforms uh, algorithms are impacting the mental health of young people. Um, What's, it's not limited to young people, that's for sure. I mean, I guarantee you, I have an unhealthy relationship with social media, like 100%. I have no, you know, talking about it, acknowledging it is probably the first step. But how are you approaching this from, from, from the context of where your expertise lies and, and what you make your living talking about? Yeah, I think we all have that kind of unhealthy relationship with social media, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I, I think when we look at AI in particular, you know, it's been really fascinating to see how quickly this has kind of exploded onto the scene in the past couple, you know, in the, in the past like six months or so, I guess, really, right? Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that really stands out to me in watching this boom happen in watching all of the hype explode is that what we really saw was the tech industry was facing a really difficult moment, right? We saw the implosion of the crypto bubble. We saw, you know, the metaverse not really getting very very much interest. We saw interest rates rising and the tech industry kind of had a business model that was based on, you know, needing access to cheap capital through low interest rates for the past 10 or 15 years, right, since the last recession. Um, and so then what we saw was, you know, they needed something to kind of get more interest, to kind of get more investment flowing into this industry. And then AI comes along as kind of the next savior. And I think that when we look at the narratives that a lot of these companies and a lot of these founders are putting out, I don't think we should buy into it very much. You know, we're hearing a lot of uh, concerns and worries about AI kind of taking over the world and being a threat to humanity and all this sort of stuff. And I think that that's really overblown. Um, I, I don't think that that is the real concern with these things. I think that the real concern and potentially going back to what you were talking about with Francis Hogan was really the, is really just how kind of it can be used to increase these existing problems that we see in technology. So it can increase inequities. You know, you can have these facial recognition systems that are really discriminatory against, you know, people of color and stuff like that. I think that these are the real risks that come with these systems, but these founders are kind of distracting us from those things because, you know, if they can shape the regulations by making these really huge claims, then it's of real benefit to them um, because it means that their companies are, you know, they're going to shape the regulation so it benefits their companies, basically. Mm. You know, we, we didn't spend too much time talking about it today, but, but we'll let our audience, uh, let the real talkers know that you've uh, done a, a ton of work uh, explaining how tech is inherently political. And I think probably the best place to point people is to your website, uh, parismarks.com. Obviously, they can follow you on Twitter. Uh, they can subscribe to your podcast, Tech Won't Save Us. And of course, they can check out your new book, The Road to Nowhere as well. And if you're watching or listening to this and you happen to be anywhere near the Metro Edmonton region, you could come hang out with Paris. Uh, uh, this is an event, uh, I believe, presented by it. Sure looks.
much like it is. Uh, it, it's Michael Jans bringing you in, isn't it, Paris, the city councilor? That's right. Yep. Yeah, michaeljans.ca slash Paris Marks. It's a, an evening at the the fabulous Cafe. Cafe. Have you been there before, this roastery? I haven't, um, no. Oh, my gosh. It's it's so cool. Such a great vibe there. Um, it's coming up on Saturday night, 6 o'clock. Again, you can learn more about uh, sending your RSVP by checking out our show notes. Paris, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, you're a really easy person to talk to, and, and, and I appreciate your perspective. And uh, I think sometimes we need a wake-up call, and we endeavor to have them every once in a while on the show. So thanks for delivering. Nah, I really appreciate it. Great to speak with you. Yeah, you as well. That's Paris Marks. Did Paris say anything that, that is like altering or is going to stick with you and, and change the way that you think about tech and future and transportation? And- I think I think we need more guests like Paris on because I agree with everything he said. Like right, right off the hop when he's talking about the goggles being ridiculous. I said this as soon as it came out. And I said the same thing about the metaverse. I mean, it's just it's too it's too soon. And the same thing with the the uh, self-driving cars like we want things so bad and we try and push them out so quick and they don't work and we're not ready for them. People aren't ready to just like they had the picture on the, the Google, uh, the Apple goggles of the woman who just puts this like snowboard goggles on, on a plane and just zones like nobody's going to do that. I'm going to do that. That sounds perfect. <laughs> I don't I mean, have to talk to anybody but for $4,000. I mean, I we're, we're just nuts. not there yet. And we were talking about how like my envision of the future with stuff like that was like smaller. Like when Google Glass came out, and I know that was a complete failure, but I figured that's what it was going to be, you know, a microchip sized piece of glass or something that goes over your glasses. And I would I would love to get a notification in the side of my left eye that said, you know, an important email or, or a text from the wife. You're or, surrounded or by. But these <laughs> we're just put these Google goggles. I mean, are we going to can, can they'll we protect disclose? you from snow? But the, the Apple goggles, I mean, but I don't think they're going to be in everyone's home right away. I mean, we just got, you know, 4K, 6K. Now they're talking about 10K flat screens. Now you're going to bring in everyone's wearing $4,000 goggles. There's, it just doesn't make sense. There's to there's so there are clips, though. I think of like Good Morning America or like the, the shows back in the early 90s mm-hmm. or the late 80s where the hosts are all they're sitting on the couch drinking their coffee, like either opening or <laughs> closing. It, and they're like, it's called email will it ever replace the letter carrier coming in and they're all laughing and snickering it's called and then, or, you know they're talking there's one in particular where the hosts are like what what's tell us about this internet what is this world wide <laughs> web and they're all laughing and snickering yeah. so i don't know yeah I, I, I try to think yesterday i don't know if we want to tell people this because it's kind of it's a flex but it's also embarrassing um but you and i because we were inventorying our space for our insurance yesterday yeah we're tallying up the number of screens in here. Yeah. And it's actually kind of shocking. 22. There's 22 screens in the yeah. Real Talk studio. Including our phones. So actually 20. So 20. And, I, and we wonder, like, I wonder if we were to replace all of them. If we just had a nice, clean setup. It's clean. But you know what I'm saying. No screens anywhere. But you just put on your apple vision pros oh, God. to get your work done if that might be you know think you could have you could have like a, you know, a nice breakfast spread in front of you you could have a melon platter yeah. instead of all those screens I mean, but it was the same thing with the hyperloop everyone was super excited about that super fast train that could get you from here to there and in you know zero to 60 and this and blah blah and and we're just not there yet and the metaverse as well the yeah. metaverse is something that i'm really interested in i think yeah. it's a great I think it could be good and bad. I think people could get sucked in and, you know, literally they were like, hey, we're all going to live in there and we're going to work in there and you can open shops in the metaverse. And I'm like, no one's ready for that yet. Like COVID just ended. We're, we're excited to be out in the world again. That's true. So I think 
I think there is a future for all of these things, but I think we just need to be a little slower because nowadays everyone wants everything. As soon as they hear about we can have this, they want it right away and we need to integrate it slowly because even when all these things come out, the metaverse and hyperloops and self-driving cars and you know virtual reality goggles and AI, there's still going to be people who are like, great, but I still like the real world. A hundred percent. There's, you know, I mean, I picked up a paper copy of the Globe and Mail. We subscribe to the digital version. But I was, you know, in travel, in transit over the weekend. I picked up a paper copy of the Globe, and I kind of got a kick out of it. But, yeah. but I don't, is that nostalgia? It's it's probably nostalgia yeah. because it wasn't convenient sitting on the plane, like unfolding all the sections, and you know. But I mean, kind of took. <laughs> but me you back like a reading bit. the newspaper still, is yeah, what you're I saying? I do. I like this comment from Final Buzzer on the live chat. who says tech isn't bad. Uh, it's progress. And, and I don't think, and I don't think even Paris would say tech is not inherently good or bad. Tech is a thing. Mm. Uh, it's not inherently good or bad. I mean, is the technology, I mean, I don't even know if this is going to make sense, but is the technology, uh, behind a nuclear bomb good or bad? No, it's the science. It's the physics. It's not good or bad. It's the application of it that makes it good or bad. Anyway, to finish, Final Buzzer is going to be like, you're going to finish my comment? Uh, tech isn't bad. It's progress. Just consider that accelerated tech is something to be wary of. I think that that's a, that's a yeah, measured assessment. 100%. I like that and Final assessment. Buzzer also said COVID ended. I didn't, I didn't mean COVID ended. I just meant, you know, yeah, we're, sure. coming out of a, uh, hey, we're coming out of a pandemic. I get, I get why some people push back when when people talking about now that we're out of covid and now well, we should pandemic, actually because i mean technically we're not but but i mean the world health organization and others have declared the pandemic it's now ahs an this week you right? don't have to wear masks in hospitals or retirement communities not anymore and not that. everyone's happy about it but i mean we're mo we're moving forward is what i meant i didn't mean covid has kind of wonder if disappeared maybe, uh, at one point i bet if you would have asked us like when when did mask mandates start getting lifted like it was like the best summer ever it was the right around that time people started i'm saying that cynically um but but jason kenny's hot boy but, summer but, exactly <laughs> when when masks were the thing um and and i'm not being glib but you remember when everybody had like their own collection i had like in in my california closet i still have closet, one right in my back a drawer with like all different colors yeah. of masks all different i mean everybody had them mm -hmm. right um you know you wear the n95 you're going here you wear the cloth or temporary you know blah 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 um at that point when it was kind of normalized people got used to it right you did get used to it most, pe most people did if you would have then floated the idea or speculated around whether or not hospitals or medical facilities would just keep mask policies in I place figured they would. permanently, I'm surprised that they haven't, to I, be honest with you. I heard it on the radio, too, and I was pretty surprised as well. But I keep a mask in my backpack just because you never know. Like yeah. You might go to someone's home or a business and they're like, hey, I'm sick, put on a mask. The other thing, I, yesterday I was doing a run-through for VegFest at the venue, at the location, and I, there was uh, one of the people who's organizing it is deaf. And I didn't even know till the end because she wasn't born deaf. She was reading lips very well. But ah. she was like talking about COVID and how masks were like, she, she was like, I understand people's health, but it was an absolute nightmare for me. Wow. It's hard enough reading lips. But yeah. it, it, she's like, you think my world was silent before? And she's talking to me saying this. It, I, it was absolutely 
a nightmare because it was everyone was mute. I couldn't see what people were saying. You know, I got anxiety from it. So again, that's really good and bad with the mask going away. But yeah, I was really surprised they took him out of hospitals and retirement homes this week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I just sort of thought that you know, it just I, I to a certain degree, maybe maybe retirement. I, I guess I see those differently. But in uh, hospital, you think they'd be for in hospitals, forever? You kind of just think that yeah. you know that that's kind of just the way it would go, right? Um, hey, so it's it's National Indigenous Peoples Day, and in just a second, we're going to take you out to Jasper and let you know what's going on out there today because they've got a, a wonderful celebration underway but did, did you see this this some caught our eye in the chat uh just a little while ago just just a few moments ago and by the way we're going to be talking about the 10th anniversary of the southern alberta floods coming up in a few minutes but but one of our regulars uh sharon morin who has uh, as a matter of fact been on the show before uh, just a fabulous human being uh, with j- just an, an incredible heart for public service uh and for the people all around her it, is telling us in the live chat that uh, Canada Post has just released a stamp. Oh yeah, I saw with this. her mom's face yeah, on I with her have, mom. Here it is, right here. Look at this. This is absolutely beautiful. So this is a this is a and uh, a stamp celebrating the life and legacy of Thelma Shalafu. And um, so so we did a, a bit of quick. We had our team just do a quick bit of research on the fly here because we want to celebrate this. This is absolutely amazing. This is a real talker's mom uh, celebrated. Uh, and, and honored. I mean, getting a stamp, a postage stamp. Are you kidding me? Like, how cool is that? It's pretty amazing. So Thelma was was born in Calgary back in 1929, one of five children. Um, her dad, Paul Villeneuve, was a residential school survivor and a veteran of the First World War. Uh, she studied at Lethbridge Community College and then went on to SATE. Uh, to say now Polytechnic, known as a social justice activist, a politician, an active figure in the Métis community. You know, there are more Métis people in Alberta than in any other uh, Canadian province mm-hmm. or territory. She co-founded the Slave Lake Friendship Center um, that helps women struggling with alcoholism and domestic abuse. She championed the teaching of Cree uh, in northern schools. She was the first woman to host a weekly show on Peace River CKYL radio. Uh, the show is called Smoke Signals from the Peace, and she was the co-producer of a program called Our Native Heritage. She was a floral designer, a business owner. She was appointed to the Canadian Senate uh, back in 1997, making her the first Indigenous woman and the fourth Métis person to serve in the Canadian Senate. She held the uh, position until 2004 when she retired and returned to Alberta. Um, at that point in 2004, the Alberta Venture magazine ranked her uh Pretty high, Johnny. Number eight on their list of the 50 greatest Albertans. Wow. Can you, be, can you imagine being named on a list in the top 10 of the greatest Albertans? Are you kidding me? No. I can't uh, after Thelma's retirement. <laughs> Definitely this is, can't. This is, plebs like us cannot wrap our minds around. Uh, she founded the Mishif Cultural and Resource Institute and uh, was the first woman to receive the National Aboriginal Achievement Award, uh, known today as the Inspire Award. She passed away surrounded by family in 2017. The year later, uh, the Edmonton Public School Board of Trustees voted to name the new school in Larkspur the Thelma Shalafu School. How cool is that? Really cool. So, Sharon, shout out to you and your family. What a, what a celebration this must be um, in honor of your mom. Absolutely incredible. Uh, it is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and we wanted to let you know. I mean, every Wednesday, we check in with our friends out in Jasper National Park. It's My Jasper Memories, presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper. And today, uh, June 21st, a very special opportunity for you to experience uh, some of the indigenous history and culture 
in that part, that most beautiful part of the Canadian Rockies. Uh, Jasper is hosting today its annual Indigenous Peoples Day celebration with a full schedule of events in Robson Park. Um, The Jasper Indigenous Forum comprises more than 20 nations uh, with traditional ties to the area, and it spans six different language groups. This year, Jasper National Park is honored to partner with Simpsuits, People of the River, as hosts of the National Indigenous Peoples Day celebration. Everybody is welcome to come out. Uh, Don't miss this chance to celebrate the storytelling, the songs, the dances, and learn from Indigenous people that have gathered and called this region home for millennia. Uh, The day kicks off around 9.30. Uh, So for those of you listening live, I mean, I'm envisioning a few people dropping everything and heading out to Jasper National Park right now. Um, They'll kick it off with a pipe ceremony and a prayer. And then from 11 to 4 today, performances of storytelling songs, dances, and drumming will take the stage. Uh, They've also got an indigenous artisan market, a ton of cultural knowledge workshops. You can learn about plant medicines, traditional languages, fishing methods, and demonstrations with flint arrowheads. Uh, You can learn more uh, via the web link. It's going to be in our show notes. Um, It's at parks.canada.ca for National Indigenous Peoples Day and Jasper National Park. To make it easy for you, we've also posted the link on our official Real Talk RJ Instagram and Twitter accounts earlier this morning to make it nice and easy for you as we celebrate and observe National Indigenous Peoples Day on this June 21st. Well, we've been recognizing through the week uh, the 10-year anniversary of the Southern Alberta floods. It's, it's either probably, if you're like me, hard to believe that it's already been 10 years or it feels like a lifetime ago when communities uh, in and around Calgary, High River, of course, who will forget some of the devastation in central Alberta, uh, Banff and Kananaskis was certainly not spared. And we could name a hundred more communities as well. A hundred thousand people displaced, five people killed directly due to those floods and more than $5 billion in damage. What do we know 10 years later about how those floods and our response to those floods shaped communities across Alberta, in particular Calgary? Uh, two researchers, disaster researchers out of Mount Royal University have been putting a lot of time into this, and uh, we're grateful to welcome them to the show. Dr. Caroline McDonald Harker is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Mount Royal University, uh, expertise in disasters, families, trauma, and resilience, with a specific focus on the social ecological factors that facilitate and support recovery. Uh, Dr. Tim Haney is a sociologist of disasters, the environment and cities. He was down in New Orleans, lived through Hurricane Katrina, and ever since then has been doing research on the social dynamics of floods, oil spills, hurricanes, wildfires, and pandemics. A lot of talk around this stuff this week here on the show, and we're grateful to welcome uh, both Dr. Haney and Dr. McDonald Harker. Uh, Caroline, maybe we'll start with you. Certainly from my perspective, I do feel like it was just yesterday that these floods occurred. I think that's in large part due to the fact that uh, disasters have continued to occur in their um, frequency and severity. Of course, we've had the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfire three years after 
the 2013 Alberta flood. And then we've had the pandemic. Right now, we know that wildfires and floods are raging across Canada. And so I think it's very top of mind for many people. Um, it's not like it was an isolated event that occurred. And we also know from um, our research findings that major disasters not only have an impact within the first few years, but some of those effects last well into 10 years and beyond. So many individuals are still impacted today and are still thinking about it. Uh, Tim, you, you were living uh, in New Orleans, is that correct? When Hurricane Katrina touched down? I was, my partner and I lived there. We went through Katrina, um, were displaced by it, evacuated from it. Lived in New Orleans for a full year after Katrina. So yeah, we've we've been through it all. Uh, then, of course, we were living in Calgary in 2013 when the flood happened. And our sort of personal connection to it is that our oldest son was born during the flood and his birth was impacted by the flood. Wow. Could, could you tell us that story? Uh, sure. So, um, so my partner was pregnant with our first child and uh, we knew that the due date was coming soon. Uh, and then... We started seeing media reports and social media coverage of of the flood, uh, and uh, uh, we was we were kind of hoping that she would uh, hold out a few more days uh, until things had kind of gotten gotten settled a little bit. But uh, um, she went into labor at uh, like during the night of the twenty second slash twenty third of June, uh, and. Um, at that time, a lot of the roads were closed. Like there was portions of Crowchild Trail that were closed, portions of Glenmore 16th that were closed. And so she went, I don't know that we can get to where we were planning to go to do the birth. So I'm staying here. And so I went, okay, I guess we're going to do a home birth. So our son was born um, at home because of the flood and uh, was actually named after the flood. The night before we had watched a really stupid uh, movie on Netflix, the movie Evan Almighty about this guy who built an ark, kind of like a modern day Noah and it's a Steve Carell movie. And so we named our son Evan after the, the flood movie. So, uh, you know, disasters have kind of kind of defined our lives in a lot of different ways. Our, our wedding was disrupted by a powerful tornado um, the same year that Katrina happened. Actually, we've kind of been through it all on a personal level. Yeah. Do your uh, friends not to not to make light of it, but do your friends suggest that there might be something following you around, Tim, that there might be something going on? Definitely. Um, you know, three three pretty major disaster events and a couple of near misses in there too. Uh, but we did have another kid in 2018 and that one, there was no disaster. So that was, that was a pretty great thing. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> we were pretty nervous. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of an interesting story to it, but it makes it all the more, I think, I don't know, ironic or, or funny that I'm also a disaster researcher. So it's what I do every day too. I teach about them, write about them, I guess at some point I decided if you can't beat him, join him. Mm, yeah. Uh, Dr. McDonald Harker, this this kind of, I, I guess, is, is uh, I mean, an obvious segue into talking about your area of expertise. I mean, the, the impact of disaster on families, right? And, and on and on bigger picture communities. I think that, I mean, I have my own stories around the Southern Alberta floods and how they impacted my family directly. I, I guarantee that thousands of people that listen to this interview will be able to say the exact same thing. How do you go about analyzing it? What angle do you take? when you start looking at the impact of a natural disaster like these floods on families? 
Certainly. So I look at the psychosocial impacts of disasters. So I look at how um, they are traumatic experiences, the mental health effect that it has. But a, a large part of my research also focuses on resilience capacity. So we, if we look at a lot of the research on disaster in the past, it has had a deficit based focus. And so my research sort of moves beyond that and takes a strength based approach to look at, well, what are some of these capacities that some of these children and adolescents had during the flood that helped them overcome it, that helped them um, move forward and, and also support their own communities and be catalysts for change. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because when we look at a large focus of research on disaster, we tend to see that um, a lot of the focus is on the impacts on physical infrastructure. So the devastation to communities, to homes, to schools, to buildings, to lands. But we also know that they have long term mental health impacts on individuals who are both directly and indirectly um, impacted by disasters. So we see that it often contributes to anxiety and depression and PTS, PTSD. And oftentimes these mental health effects following disaster are so profound that, as I mentioned earlier, they last much longer than the visible destruction caused by disaster, with some people still suffering uh, effects even 10 years later. Uh, yeah, we, we talked to, to, to John Valiant about this as well, uh, uh, and, and just the, the impact that wildfires are having on people. And he made that same point uh, about, you know, we talked about the Fort McMurray wildfires, but we could talk about Slave Lake. We could talk, I mean, obviously, there's dozens or hundreds of examples we can talk about. Uh, Carolyn, how does, how does someone know uh, if, if they're maybe still wrestling, I don't know how to put it, I guess, basically, if they've got PTSD, if they're still living with trauma, but, but maybe haven't received that as an official diagnosis, maybe they're not receiving mental health supports. What would be some of the factors that people should look for within, you know, between their own two ears, so to speak? I think it's important that people look at their behavioral approaches or how they've adapted. So it's normal in the immediate aftermath of a disaster to feel stressed, to feel anxious, to be worried, um, you know, to constantly have fear, if you will, that another disaster is going to happen. But it's looking at beyond that. So are people able to cope, um, you know, within a few weeks, within a few months? And so I always recommend that people look at um, their their behavior and compare it to how it was prior. So are people um, sleeping more or less? Are people eating more or less? Are people withdrawing from activities that they once found to be very enjoyable? Are they more irritable? Is there more conflict in their relationships? And paying attention to um, one's behavior and recognizing what are the stressful factors contributing to it. And I always recommend that people reach out sooner rather than later, because what we tend to see in a disaster context is that there are a lot of supports within the first year to to three years. One to three years is usually what we see. And oftentimes when people actually realize that they're not able to overcome some of these stressors, oftentimes a lot of these resources and supports are no longer available. And I think it's important that people not just access formalized supports. There, you know, there's so much um, hesitation to do that where people think, oh, well, my neighbor was impacted more than I was and maybe I don't need formalized support. But even opening up the lines of communication with family members, um, with, with other supports that you have in your community is crucial um, and not feeling like your experience is not as severe as others. Uh, so I think it's important that people have those discussions and specific to families that parents talk 
with their children, that they say, you know, how are you doing today? And that they're open and honest. And if they're struggling, that they say, hey, you know what? Mommy's having a hard time today or it's the 10th anniversary and, you know, I'm having a hard time dealing with it. And it's important that people are honest with those conversations with their children. Mm. Yeah, it's isn't it fascinating? I mean, I mean, both of you, I'm sure, uh, and Dr. Haiti will get you to touch on this as well, have experience in this, but you think of, of, of parents and, and throughout history, I mean, I guess this has always been the case. You pick your decade and you'll have had, you know, sort of the threats that humankind has faced through those decades. But you look at as of late, parents have had to understand or try to determine the best way to talk to, you know, young kids, tweens, teens, about things that surround them, issues that they can't ignore. I mean, we talked to, you know, our uh, when, when, when COVID sort of came about, I guess, our, our now almost eight-year-old would have been five, right? And, and even just what we called it, right, the sickness, and, and the, but, the, but the way that he would talk about the sickness or the way that, that parents help their children um, process why maybe the flag football game is canceled on Sunday because the air quality is so poor and why is the air quality poor and what's happening or, you know, they're walking past a screen and they see the news and they see, you know, it, it, swaths of land in the boreal forest, you know, ablaze. I mean, Tim, you're, you, we talk about your, your kids you know, I mean, how, how do you on a personal level navigate this? All things, including mental health considered. And that's a good question. Uh, so I think my, my kids are a little different. They've sort of grown up around continual discussions of disasters sure. because it's a big theme in our house. Um, but I think, yeah, I think for us, it's been matter, matter of fact uh, discussions about it. Maybe not like, you know, like our children don't need all the details about what goes on during a disaster, but sort of understanding the community dynamics of it, the fact that, um, you know, a, a lot of good can come out of a lot of bad. And so we do stress those things too with them. Uh, as an example, some of the research that I did after the flood in Calgary found that people who were affected by the flood in the 26 neighborhoods of Calgary that were impacted by the flood um, actually um, were quite successful at forming new social networks and meeting their neighbors at um, feeling more attached to their community than they did before the flood. Ah. And it was the people who were most severely impacted um, by the flood who had the largest losses, for instance, um, that actually were more likely to go meet new neighbors that they didn't know before and so on. It was the situations of need that brought people together. Um, and so, you know, disasters are, are you know, horrible, terrible, life-changing events. And I would never want to say anything other, but... Um, but there is good that can arise out of them and communities can become stronger moving forward. Um, so I think to talk about that with young people as well, too, uh, as well as to tap into this is what a lot of Carolyn's work does to tap into their capacities for creativity and for, uh, you know, new ideas. Um, because kids are really sharp and they can figure out what wasn't working about their community beforehand and what could be different going forward in a post-disaster context. So um, asking them for their ideas and, and actually taking seriously their ideas is a really great way to get kids engaged in the process and make it less traumatic and more more empowering for them. Hmm. I, I, I'd be curious for both your take on this, Caroline. Maybe we'll start with you first on your assessment of, of how we rebuilt and, and, and not just technically, um, but but with with rebuilding physical structures, uh, with developing new communities, with uh, maybe people's uh, individual and collective uh, evolution on on how they view the environment, um, climate change, sustainability. Uh, how would you assess Alberta's 
rebuild over the past 10 years? Well, I think there have been efforts to mitigate future disasters, but to be quite frank, I think a lot more needs to be done. We still tend to see communities um, and and builders who are building homes close to floodplains, and I think that that is 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 disastrous. Uh, it, it's it's only contributing to the problem later on. Um, but I always recommend that individual households take a look at what they're doing. So while we can't control nature and weather, there's certainly some things that we do have control over and we can do from our end. And that is to ensure that we ourselves are prepared. So people should ensure that their homes are secured and protected, that they have evacuation plans in place, that they have discussed with their families an emergency plan, that they have 72 hour emergency kits and uh, food storage and water supply. And these are all things that people have control over. And when people are prepared, it does reduce stress. Um, and it's crucial to plan for catastrophic events like disasters, uh, because they are going to continue to increase um, with with climate change. And so while we may not be able to control what our, our, you know, province is doing or our communities, I think that uh, people need to be more aware if you're looking to purchase a home or build a home that you look where is that home located. So a lot of this information is still not transparent and it's putting residents at risk. And that's something that we need to take seriously that we have not um, fully done to the best of our capacity. Uh, Tim, as soon as as soon as you saw Caroline say they're not transparent, you just had this physical reaction. Like it looks like you just absolutely agree 100 percent very strongly. So- so yes, we have these regulatory flood maps. And so if you buy a home, you can know if you're in the floodway or the flood fringe area, if you're in a flood prone area. But a lot of people don't understand what that actually means. So as part of my research projects, I've talked to Calgarians about flood risk. And I remember um, talking with a couple that had just bought a lot that had flooded during the 2013 flood. And like a year after they were planning on building their dream home on this lot. Right. And I was trying to get get at the the sort of thought process behind that. And they said to me, well, they told us that the Calgary flood was a one in a hundred year flood. So we should be good for 99 more years. No, that is not how the logic works, but people don't always understand what that means. The other thing is the maps are based upon the past about upon how often an area has flooded and how severely in the past. So it's making the assumption that that's going to be true going forward. And the truth is we like Carolyn mentioned climate change. We don't really know that. Um, So could these events become more common going forward? Um, And so as a result, I would be really hesitant to buy a home in, in a flood prone area of the city. But like Carolyn mentioned, again, we continue to approve building permits in flood fringe areas. Um, And this is where it really runs into the issue of densification that there's this focus in Calgary on densifying existing neighborhoods. Those are often neighborhoods that are near the city's rivers, the Bow and Elbow River. Um, And so when we're densifying those neighborhoods, we're putting more people closer to the hazards. Um, I'm not a big fan of sprawl and building far out either, um, but I think there have to be discussions about what kind of building is prudent and safe and wise for our city to do. Um, but the reality is builders and developers can make a ton of money building homes near flood, near hazards, near flood prone areas. So, yeah, it's wild. Um, we were talking to John Vellian yesterday, uh, a fire weather author, and he was pointing out to us, I think it, uh, who is it? State Farm, I think, Johnny, right? The, the, I mean, the insurance giant. And Allstate. Uh, and Allstate as well, right? They, they will not insure. They're not issuing new policies in California for fire. Like they just forget about they're too expensive. They're just not available. Uh, no. th- that's hard to wrap and, your mind around on a mortgaged property. 
And the insurance piece is a piece that uh, that I think didn't get talked about enough during the 2013 flood. At that time, overland flooding was just not insurable in Canada. You could not get overland flooding protection. So these are uninsured losses for the most part that people sustained in 2013. That product became a little more available in Canada starting in about 2015, but it tends to be expensive. It tends to be hard to access. Um, and as a result, most Canadians who live in flood-prone areas um, do not have flood insurance. They're not any more protected now than they were in 2013. Um, and so insurers are, like you pointed out, increasingly worried about insuring people who live near these hazards. And so um, this is this is a this is a big challenge. It means a lot of people are left unprotected. Um, and as we know, our wealth tends to be tied up in the homes that we purchase. So um, people's wealth is at risk. And their livelihoods are at risk as a result of these disasters and hazards. Mm. Um, we're, we're talking to uh, that was uh, uh, Dr. Tim Haney and uh, also joined by his colleague, uh, Dr. Carolyn uh, McDonald Harker, both of them uh, professors and disaster researchers out of Mount Royal University in Calgary. They've been spending a ton of time uh, looking into the longer term impacts of disaster, but in particular, the southern Alberta floods. Uh, before we thank the two of you for your time, uh, you know, over the next couple of weeks, uh, this week in particular, people will be seeing, uh, I mean, even right here here on this show uh, footage they'll be reminded of where they were or how their family was impacted by this and we hope um, and we're confident that your appearance on this show will, will prompt some thinking and prompt some introspection with people um, what's one thing I want to give you both this assignment Caroline maybe you first uh, that you think people would benefit from thinking about give us give us an assignment while we're riding our bike this weekend or walking our dog or maybe sitting down by the river 10 years after these devastating uh, natural disasters? I think it's important for us to reflect on um, what have we learned and where do we go from here? Um, and as Dr. Haney said, the disruption caused by the flood wasn't all negative. My research found that besides getting to know their neighbors um, and, and seeing each other more frequently as they came out in droves to help each other, Many families said that experiencing the flood helped them to reassess their priorities and what they valued most in their life. They had spent their whole life working towards purchasing and accumulating material items. And in an instant, that was all gone. Um, so it really caused them to pause and reflect on their life and recognize that things like family and relationships and community are much more important than material items. And that's something that I heard time and time again in my research with families. And so I, I challenge people to think about what are some of the things that they learn and what are their priorities moving forward and what are, are their goals and plans? Because in a moment, like we see with disasters, a lot of the, the things that we once prioritized are not, no longer a priority. So thinking about what really matters. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I appreciate that. And and um, I, I saw a comment in our live chat. Somebody said like uh, emergency preparedness. I can't remember the exact phrase, but they said something like, um, you know, ba basically there's like a sort of a fine line between being ready and getting into tinfoil hat territory. Um, I, I don't know. I was even I was thinking about like really practical stuff. I was thinking about, you know, we're t spending a lot of time talking about wildfires as well. I mean, the two of you, of course, here mostly talking about floods. But I think about those folks in Fort McMurray, like what about I'm sure that this has to have been the case for a lot of people. The people that were rolling around with like an eighth of a tank of fuel in their minivan that like weren't ready to go. People that just, just didn't have a bag pack, which would for all intents and purposes be most people 
in a situation like that, the evacuation order comes fast. I mean, that fire blew in fast. Uh, you could say the same thing about a lot of these floods. It, it caught a lot of people off guard. I mean, we'll all remember the, you know, the firefighters and, and search and rescue folks helping people with rowboats and zodiacs. And I mean, that, that it, it happens fast. Um, I think even from like a basic emergency preparedness standpoint, like I am not prepared at all. I mean, I, you know, I'm not one of those people that always has their fuel tank at the top. I mean, that's just one example out of a million, though, Tim. Uh, has, has that impacted? I mean, has your research and, and, and your personal experience, has that impacted like your everyday life? Like, like how much, assuming you're driving, maybe you're not, but how much gas is in your car right now if you do drive? Oh, 100%. And it's full. Um, and it always is. And so huh. my partner and I, having gone through all these disasters we've gone through, we're sort of, we're definitely verging on prepper prepper territory. Yeah. Um, so we, we stockpile food. We've got the 72 hour kit that Carolyn mentioned. We've got one in our vehicle as well. Um, so that stuff is always with us. We're always thinking about disasters and risk, um, you know, for better or worse. Um, but, you know, I don't think that people need to take it to that extreme, but if you want to have a 72 hour kit as everybody should, um, there's organizations like the Calgary Emergency Management Agency in the city of Calgary, the Alberta Emergency Management Agency provincially, and they have on their websites documents that you can use to assemble what you would need. So the medicines that you would need, the pet supplies that you would need, the how much water you would need, et cetera, to be able to shelter in place for 72 hours uh, during one of these events. So um, if you can afford it, and not everybody can afford to assemble all these things, if you can afford it and have the means, it's a great thing to do uh, to have some readiness at a at an individual or household level. That's uh, Dr. Tim Haney. We've also been hearing from uh, Dr. Carolyn McDonald Harker, both of them uh, sociology professors, disaster researchers out of Mount Royal University in Calgary. Thank you so uh, much to both of you for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, you, you've hit on angles that a lot of us, myself included, really, quite frankly, haven't considered. And I really appreciate you taking the conversation there. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you can link to both of the professor's uh, work by checking out the show notes on the podcast or on YouTube, however you're getting real talk. Uh, Johnny, I think I know you relatively well, but I do not know you where don't. I do not know. Uh, sometimes <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where you land on keeping your fuel fuel tank topped up. Are you a, like stretch it ten more kilometers to the, you know, to get it into the the red I used zone? To or I used to be like, okay, it's empty, let's fill it up. But I, you know, after meeting my partner and now we're married, she is exactly. I, I think she's more more like Tim. Okay, so we have a go bag now. You do really well. We were in Kelowna during the fires, and that right. that was something that kind of startled me because you know I'd always heard. Living in Alberta, you know about the wildfires, you see the smoke, it's never in the city. It's never in Edmonton and surrounding area. Mm. You know, sometimes on the outskirts, but never, you never see it up close. And in Kelowna, we could see it from our apartment. It was literally, you know, a mile away across the way. So sh now we have a go bag. Uh, we've got stuff ready to go if we have to. And uh, we have we have some preparedness. We've got. Uh, did you see this comment? But from uh, it, with the gas thing, always half a tank. I fill it up now. Yeah, it's at half. I fill it up. I'm, I'm, I mean, to give you some insight into how I operate. I did it yesterday. I was driving a vehicle. Uh, this was last summer, but but I was driving a vehicle. Realized I had to be somewhere in 20 minutes, and it was like a 20 minute drive. I had no time to stop. Realized the vehicle had like no gas in it. <laughs> So I just worst. grabbed the jerry can out of the garage yeah. that's used to fill the lawnmower. And I was like, if I run out, I run out. I mean, that's how you realize that you're just, I mean, just generally speaking, underprepared. Yeah. But, and my partner has PTSD now from the Kelowna thing. So she mm. wants, she's like, when I get in the car, if yeah. it's not three quarters of 
a tank and there's a go bag and there's stuff in the car too. We've got like an emergency kit now. Yeah, so. Um, a lot of people I see in our live chat talking about the RCMP uh, seizing guns was in High River. That was that was another interesting story. And that was one that became obviously very politically charged and for, for several years after the fact. Um, a great handle here from Bunny Slippers, who's tuning in. Love it. Um, says, I have an EV and it's always charged. Um, you know me, I'm open minded to EVs, uh, but but I, I wonder like in. You know, not to say that gas stations are always open because we know that they're not and they can run out of fuel or they can be impacted, obviously, just like any other business by fire or flood. But but EVs, charging stations like in Alberta, it's not that great. You could find yourself in a real jam. I mean, you could say that the same thing about internal combustion for sure. No, I looked this up when we were talking about it on the show. Toronto's got a ton Vancouver as well, uh, obviously. But uh, Edmonton, I don't know. Like, where am I going to go if I buy an EV? I, I know there's one at the Ikea. Right there on Calgary Trail, but yeah, that's I mean, about what, it. What, yeah, I mean, geez. Uh, these are things to think about. How, 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 where are you landing on this? I mean, what are you thinking about 10 years? I mean, we know that we have people listening. Uh, a lot of you will be listening from Eastern Canada. Some of you from BC. What do you remember out of province about those Southern Alberta floods? You know, I remember driving in. I was on assignment, obviously, hosting a, a TV show at that time, breakfast television, and, and driving from Edmonton, getting down into Calgary, and it just blew my mind. I was arriving about 1 in the morning, getting set for the next morning's show, and I'll never forget it. It was my hometown. It's where I grew up, and just seeing the devastation at that point. I mean, the, I think that the Saddle Dome was probably became an, and Johnny, I know that here for people watching on YouTube, yeah. you're sharing some of those <clears throat> images. I think they were saying up to row 13 or something like yeah. that. It was full. It was like a punch bowl, just mm-hmm. full. Remember Harvey the Hound, the master? Scott, they found his head floating around. It was kind of became, a, became like, like a the symbol. Scene, right? It was horrific. <laughs> it was like the symbol of the floods. But but on a personal level, I, our, our story would be like thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people's as well. Yeah. You know, my brothers, my younger brothers, his his wife's parents. I mean, their their house was was virtually destroyed mm-hmm. uh, in in the in uh, just off Memorial Drive there in Calgary. I remember. Uh, seeing photos of them, you know, you go into the basement, right? The stairs down to the basement, the water was almost up to the main floor. In yeah. other words, the water was almost up to the ceiling of the basement. I mean, yeah. it's just wild to That's think crazy. about. Yeah. I just looked up the EV thing. So Alberta's got about 250 charging stations compared to Toronto, which has like 1,600. Yeah. So it's and I like, don't want to turn this into like, oh, Jesperson's saying that EVs. No, but are, I'm but someone who wants like an a, EV eventually. It's and a, I'm it's like, it's a practical thing to enough. think about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you imagine if everybody's hitting the road at the same time. But also, let's be honest, we don't think it's going to happen to us. But also, is that an Alberta pushback thing? Because they've got the lowest out of the major provinces, BC, Toronto, hmm. uh, Quebec, or BC, Ontario, Quebec. So may- maybe it's an Alberta thing. Like, we don't want the EVs yet. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, Lauren pointing out that Edmonton fire responded to the Calgary floods. Absolutely. Um, Dennis talking about how the Calgary Zoo was really affected. That's absolutely true. Dennis, I remember right. that. Didn't, one, didn't yeah. the, one of the hippos, they said one of the hippos almost just got, got into the Bow River? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't even know what. Well, you've got animals in that. cages. Like, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. I, I'm guessing, I know it's sad, but humans are the, the number one priority. So that was something... My partner Can you, was watching that be too. Fascinating to get the to to get some. Uh, we had the Calgary Zoo's, I think it was CEO or executive, whatever his title is, uh, on the show a while back. It was actually a fascinating interview. Um, but imagine here understanding what emergency protocol would look like at a zoo. I'm sure they have one now. Like what? But but <laughs> seriously, then, are you yeah. loading up lions and Siberian tigers and gorillas and giraffes? But and who's doing that when their families at home? And they've got to do the same thing. That's yeah. why we were worried about it. Yeah, wild. Um, 
if you were me uh, and you were about to thank some sponsors uh, for making the show happen, you'd probably talk about Complete Care Restoration right now. I mean, it seems to make perfect sense, and I'm, I'm not trying to be a smartass about it. Um, Complete Care Restoration, Johnny, put it this way. Uh, they're one of our valued sponsors of the Real Talk Golf Classic tomorrow. They're, they're sending representation, but their team won't be there. Uh, because they are all hands on deck right now. Because of everything going on. Because of everything going on. You know, because of, of some of the flooding and in particular the fire damage that they're helping people bounce back from. It's what they do. And quite frankly, based on what we've seen and doing business with them, it's what they do best. A team of absolute professionals. And, and this is a, a family owned business. Uh, the still uh, the ownership group in place from the moment that they founded this company more than 10 years ago. And they take every job personally. You can tell it. Uh, it's just evident in the way that they work and in the finished product. If, if you're experiencing the gut punch of fire damage or flood damage, number one, our thoughts are with you. Number two, do yourself a favor and check out CompleteCareRestoration.ca today. We also wanted to mention our friends at Local Environmental Services are looking to grow their footprint in Alberta and Saskatchewan right now. And one of the reasons why a lot of people are choosing local for whether it's the big roll-off bins or front-load bins, maybe you've got uh, this time of year a, a project underway at home, maybe you're redoing the roof or maybe you're replacing your siding. Uh, people are going to localenvironmental.ca because they're getting better service, better prices, and this is a company that supports local causes. You can learn more about what they're doing in Edmonton, an area, Regina, an area, Whitecourt, an area, by visiting localenvironmental.ca today. Don't forget, because of our golf classic tomorrow, there's no show on Friday. You can probably guess why, and uh, that means trash talk's coming up tomorrow. If you want to get in a gripe, a rant, Make sure you send it to us, talk at ryanjesperson.com before Thursday morning. That's presented by Local Environmental Services. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton, Sherwood Park, are going to be out there on the golf course tomorrow with their Dilly Bar Shooters on the 10th tee box. Danger, danger, Will So looking forward to that. You and I will have to pass by that tee box a couple of times for those Dilly Bar Shooters. A couple. These are presented by the Dairy Queens in Palisades, the Mayo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. They want to remind you that any occasion is a happy occasion with a DQ cake. Layers of celebration, that world-famous soft serve, a fudgy, crunchy, chocolatey middle. It's the perfect way to celebrate any occasion. You can check them out online, or you can go visit them in-store at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And a shout out to those of you, you are a talented engineer or you're just about to graduate from school, but to be honest, you know it, you're feeling it, it's time to shake things up. Maybe you need a, a new landscape, a new team to work with, a new challenge. Apex Automation wants to hear from you. If you're an electrical engineer, instrumentation, computer science process, or mechanical engineer, if you're an electrician, if you're an instrument technician, their team is growing so fast right now that we can't keep track with all the field offices that they're opening up. Congratulations to members of their team that are now, of course, blazing that trail down in Houston, Texas. Apex Automation continuing to grow, putting their people ahead of their profits. And that's one of the big reasons why we recommend if you've got the skills and you'd love to work with a team that'll help you realize your potential, you're going to want to visit apexautomation.ca today. The skills to pay the bills. I thought of going there, you know? We had a lot to talk about this week with disaster and climate yeah. change. and Heavy. You know, my partner was like, well, this, this is a heavy week. Yeah. And she's, you know, of course, she's a Pisces, so. Yeah. And she's an emote, and she's worried about the world ending. 
<laughs> is she? I don't know too much about the signs, but is she? Is she like a true? If you read the definition of a Pisces, would she? Well, be... she's also just a person who's very like you know, she's connected to everything. You uh-huh. know what I mean? She reads a sad story. She puts herself in that person. She's and I'm the type. She's of person, empathetic. I close the window. I'm like, I have to go to work. I I don't have to think about this. She you know fully envelops it. But she she was saying, wow, you've been talking about this a lot. And someone just commented. I wish we could have got to it. I know we got to go, but we, we haven't talked about that submersible. That's let's go. No, let's talk, we don't have to go. We can do whatever the hell we want. So um, this is this. Uh, this was like, what was it like? Uh, uh, 250 grand or something. Yeah. A, a person for, for these folks to get Five people went missing. This submersible to go see the Titanic, right? There's, like two and a half miles down. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a luxury voyage to go. And they, I, apparently it's right by where this Titanic wreck is, but they never made it out there. Uh, they they got pings kind of halfway there. Uh, an aircraft actually heard sounds using uh, some some sort of radar or something at thirty minute intervals from the area where the sub disappeared, according to internal emails uh, sent to DHS leadership obtained by. Actually, I'm reading this on Rolling Stone right now, but um, yeah, that's just crazy. It's, but apparently, they have air in this thing for about four days. So, so I in mean, other words, they're running been, out of air. This has been two days now. And, well, missing, if they're so. still alive, I mean, it's 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 such a. This is, can I just? Well, to be honest, the show's called Real Talk. It, it's one of these things where I see it's half, horrifying. It's horrifying. It's a nightmare to but think. But also, about. like a lot of people are kind of joking about it. I don't know if they're just assuming that these folks are going to survive, or it's just one of those things where there's a lot of people are kind of poking fun. I don't know if you saw. There's the, one of the billionaires on board. His son. Uh, was tweeting, um, and I don't. Hey, different people manage grief differently, and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not making a judgment call here, but his son tweeted that you know my dad is on board this vessel, mm-hmm. and I'm very worried, and they're missing. And then he tweeted a photo um, wearing a new Blink 182 shirt from the merch tent at the Blink 182 concert, and he was like, "My dad would want me to be here," kind of idea. Yeah. And, and, and number one, I thought, why are you posting that? But but you know whatever yeah. people deal with grief differently. Um, but the comments, the replies to the tweet were not gracious yeah uh which is weird because usually on twitter everybody's so kind and gentle and thoughtful (laughs) but uh in a parallel universe yeah but uh yeah they were they were you know quoting blink 182 lyrics and all that kind of stuff but i just that that it sounds to me and again i'm not so familiar with the story that i feel like i can comment on it authoritatively but it sounds to me like it's pretty basic tech like the fact that First of all, you're spending a quarter. Is it true people spend a quarter million dollars to go down on this thing? Yeah, to so go down to each see Titanic. Dive down is but they don't have the capabilities to to bring it back up or to tell well, where it's a it very is. Very small vessel. They're using things well, like yeah, like it I mean, has a constant pinging, which which is is heard by radar or sonar. Or but whatever. obviously, it's not working. And they have lights as well, but it's very small. We're talking about deep waters here. You've got the Boston Coast Guard. You've got Joint Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax. So you got Canadians and Americans working together because it's kind of in the middle. Well, not in the middle, but you know what I mean. Uh, and so if what I read been is able true to find about everything. this, if now, what I read is true about it, is it also there's no escape hatch? Um, like no. even if they were to be able to rise to the surface, apparently there's something like 20 bolts on the exterior. I'm not. I don't consider yeah. myself this to is be claustrophobic, that's, that's but launched, I, right? this yeah. would be a nightmare. So now they said they're going to employ a remote. Let me just scroll back up to this. They're gonna they're gonna use remote operated vehicles. Uh, through partnership, these two organizations in Halifax and uh, Boston to possibly uh, search for the missing submersible. But they're stating like these are deep, deep waters and they're, and they're 
Yeah, I mean, Alberta Girl says these poor people are lo- are locked in that thing. It could be 4,000 meters b- below sea. 13,000 like, foot depth can is you what try, they were looking at. I can't at. even wrap my mind around that. Like, that is that is so... You know, Justin says there's videos, and Justin, you know, I mean, obviously, we're just kind of shooting the shit here. I, I don't, I saw the same video I think that he's talking about, and I don't know if this has been verified. I'll take his word for it, but he said there's videos showing the inside of this vessel and how it works. And there's like a Logitech game controller that's used to steer the thing. He says it's not been approved by any kind of agency that says that it's safe at that depth. I've, I've seen some commentators online. I'm not talking about like just like, you know, Jordan 65755. I'm talking about like people that, yeah. that, that understand engineering and tech that have said with a vessel like this the more simple the controls the better 100 percent. i don't know but they're also saying that like apparently there's lights that are constantly flashing on this thing so they've got divers on the surface during the day going down as far as they can trying to look around but even if those divers find like wreckage or this thing down there we're talking about 13,000 well, yeah, divers feet. can never I mean, no even- you have to send an underwater drone a remote operated vehicle to even get to them and drag them up to the surface. So it's just nightmarish stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, people are saying, where's James Cameron on this? I mean, in all seriousness, probably this is something that would intrigue James Cameron. Uh, Kathy says there was talk on the news this morning. There was metal fatigue at play on the vessel. Uh, could be a real possibility that it imploded at that depth. It's, it, it, it's, you can't, it's a you lot can't of pressure. wrap your right? mind down around there? how much yeah. pressure would be on that vehicle yeah. uh, down there, yeah. that vessel. Um, I mean, I just can't even... I just can't even imagine that. And I, I don't want to say anything, but like if they aren't found, I mean, will they ever kind of thing? Because it's a very small vehicle, right? So, yeah, we are. We are hoping they find something. And I mean, you've got tons of people from North America, United States this- and Canada. They are focused on this every day because they know they're at the halfway point. They've only got, you know, a day and a half, two Not days to be Captain Obvious there. saying the dumbest things at the table, but yeah. you know, like the the irony as well of going down to see Titanic and not coming back up. It's, it's just also, yeah. oh man, um, <laughs> this is a tough transition. Sometimes we're silly on the show, and 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 sometimes we just tackle serious stuff head on. And uh, tomorrow it's going to be our final show of the week. Uh, Doctor Mira Nair is going to join me in studio. You know, um, not to pile on uh, some of the emotional toll that these conversations can take, but uh, we're approaching as well the anniversary of the Air India bombing, which is the worst uh, terrorist incident in Canada's history uh, by far. But uh, Dr. Nair will argue tomorrow and we'll get an understanding on it why that Canada has has unremembered this tragedy that Canada has never really taking it taking it seriously or, or responded in meaningful fashion. Um, it's a conversation that you don't see a lot in mainstream news, and we are proud to be hosting it here. That's coming up on tomorrow's episode of Real Talk. In the meantime, we wanted to thank you, all of you that have joined our community in the past while. We see it. We see you signing up and subscribing to our weekly email at ryanjesperson.com. Thank you to our new Patreon supporters. Thank you to those of you that have been subscribing to our YouTube channel. That's up about a thousand in the last few weeks. And of course, to our podcast as well. It means a ton to us. We want to keep these conversations going and make sure that as many people as possible are hearing them. And we thank you for that. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, 
voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.